0: We have seen the Lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls, worthy to open the seals, the seven seals on the scroll, and the praise that comes to Him for His worthiness. Now we see Him begin to open the seals of the book. Revelation chapter 6 is where we will be tonight. We are going to cover the first six seals. And as I was playing out the sermons, kind of where they would fall and kind of, Grouping these things into sections, cause there's certain, there's certain amounts of scripture that as you're reading, look, this is, this is about what I can cover in a sermon. You know, this is about where, how much, and I looked at this, and it was a close, coming up on Christmas time, and so I decided to give this sermon the working title of Six Seals of Breaking. But, I, I I'm just gonna call it the first six seals. Um, it's interesting when you, when you start to get into the study of Revelation, it's easy to get sidetracked. There's so many details and people with nothing better to do with their lives but nitpick over details like to try to tear this up apart and, and focus on every little thing as though, um, John is writing this in order just to be cryptic. But one of the things we have to remember is that when John is writing this, he is writing what he is seeing. And so everything that he writes, while it may not be precisely literal, he's seeing what's to come and he's trying to describe it the best way he can. But he's also writing to real people in a real situation. This whole book, not just the first three chapters, but the whole book is written to the seven churches that are in Asia. The whole book is written to Christians who are either facing persecution or should be persecuted because they really need something to to get them going. He's writing to people who are seeing the hammer come down from the Roman Empire, or he's writing to people who in some churches have left their first love and need to be reminded of who it is they fell in love with at the first, to recapture that love so that they can live for him. He's writing to churches made of real people in real historical circumstances okay he's not writing to be cryptic he's not writing for us to analyze every little detail he's writing so that we will see that our god reigns that he is in charge and so the worthy lamb who takes these seals and breaks them to open the scroll this is a sign of things to come what's interesting is that the scroll isn't really opened until chapter 8 whenever you sealed the book You would seal it toward the outside, and so all seven of these seals are probably sitting on the outside of the book. You probably can't see what's written on the inside of this book until you break all seven seals, and that doesn't happen until chapter eight. So today, we're going to look at the first six seals, and what we're really looking at are the things that are taking place in order to set up the things that are written in this book. In other words, what we're going to see in chapter 6 are the things that set the stage. Not just the things that are the end themselves, but are the beginning of the end, okay? So look with me in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to break this up by seal. So we'll read a couple verses at a time, and, and then we'll talk about them as we read. Now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come! And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. This was the first seal. Um. Now I watched. He looks, he's seen all of these things that are taking place he's seen the worship of this lamb who was worthy to break the seals and i don't know how long this worship took i imagine it took quite a while for them to fully get out all of their praise but the worship has subsided enough the 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 elders have maybe if they're still worshiping have have gone quiet I imagine they're still worshiping, just not as animately as before. But now all the attention is on the Lamb, who has the scroll, and he begins to break seals. And when he breaks the first seal, one of the living creatures calls out, come! Some versions might have come and see, taking this as the living creature talking to John as he's viewing this vision. Some, it looks more like he's calling out to what's to come. One of the four horsemen. Um, some, I guess some scholars didn't want to call them horsemen, so they called them cavaliers. But it's the same idea. There's a rider on a horse. John sees the horse. It's a white horse. Now, where, where else do we see a white horse? Go ahead and say it out loud. At the return of Christ. We see Jesus riding on a white horse, right? So is this Jesus? Well, You might think that, but there's not really much in common between Jesus and this rider. Look at how this rider is described. Its rider had a bow. Now, that to us, having a bow doesn't really signify much. To them, it would have signified the strength of war. Archers were a prevalent force of warfare. And so him having a bow would be a, a sign, it would be a weapon. It would be a sign of military power a sign of one who had vast military resources. This one is kind of like a general in a sense. We don't don't see Jesus riding with a bow. In Revelation 9, we see him riding with a sword coming out of his mouth. Again, a crown was given to him. This crown, there are two types of crowns, okay? All right, and I'm not talking about the dental things. I'm talking about, the crowns that you put on your head in scripture there's two Greek words. One we sing in, in a hymn every now and then. We don't I love this hymn, um, so I would like to hear more of it. But then again, you know, he's he's the one who picks the hymns, so there you go. But yeah. The one I'm thinking of is all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem. That's Greek word diadem, diadema is is actually Greek diadem is kind of the English version of that it's the king's crown okay it's the crown that the one in authority has and when we see Jesus on a white horse he's not just wearing one diadem he's wearing seven of them not only does he have authority he has all authority this crown right here though is not the diadem it's the other crown it's the uh Stephanos crown this crown would have been the one that you give to the olympic champion after he wins a victory in the race this would have been the crown of victory the crown of conquest it would have been a good crown a nice crown a beautiful crown paul talks about it in first corinthians 9 athletes will subject themselves he talks about uh, uh and control themselves and train themselves so that they When a perishable stephanos, a perishable crown, a crown that's made from foliage, maybe it's made from some kind of metal that's made to look like plants, but it's perishable. It's something that doesn't last. And athletes will train themselves to get what doesn't last. But Paul says we train ourselves to get something that will last. We train ourselves not for a perishable crown, but for an imperishable one. And he talks about the fact how we have to beat our body into subjection and train ourselves to do the task that God has called us to do. The idea of the Stephanos crown, the one that he's riding, is is the victor's crown. And it's given to him. Given by whom? Who's the victor? The one who's worthy. Who's opening the scrolls? I don't think this is Jesus on this white horse. But I do think it's God's, it's one of the, one of the servants of God, one of the ones, maybe it's an angel, but it's one of the ones that is serving God in a specific capacity. And what does he do? Verse two. And he came out conquering and to conquer. This is a weird phrase in, in the Greek language, but there is a parallel in Hebrew. Sometimes you would put a word and then put the same word in a different form right behind it. And when you have those two forms together, it's a, it's a way of saying how completely you do an action. It's a way of of stressing not just that you do it, but that you do it to the fullest, that you do it completely, that you do it to the utmost. And so the, I think what might be going on here is John might be saying, this guy isn't just going to conquer a little bit, but fall short of his goal. He's going to fully conquer. He's going to conquer everything that God wants him to conquer. Some people have compared this to the idea of of war. I don't think it's war yet because there's, there's another horseman to come that will be war. This one almost seems like a peaceful sort of conquest. I mean, it's a white horse. It's not stained with blood or anything. There's no death. In fact, this doesn't really look like a negative thing so much as just something that is setting the stage. It's almost like God is saying, all right, now I need you to get all the right things in place to start putting everything together the way that it needs to be so that when these other horsemen come and so that when these other seals are broken and, and the other actions are taking place, everything else will fall right in. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe it's not peaceful. Maybe it is military combat oriented. But it just seems like there's no real negative consequence directly here. And if I'm correct, if, if I'm reading this right, what this seems to suggest to me is that sometimes God is working out his plan in such a way that when he's going to bring judgment, sometimes it doesn't show his judgment from the very beginning. Sometimes it shows calm. Sometimes it looks like everything's going to be okay. This may even be, some have argued that this might even be the Antichrist riding on this, setting up his world government. I don't know about that. And that one just doesn't quite mesh. I don't see the beast um, being sent out from God with a victor's crown because uh, he's not a victor. But the idea is still there that this is a conquest that will enable what else is coming. God is setting the stage. No matter who it is that the rider is on this horse, God is setting the stage. This is God getting everything in place so that his will will be perfectly accomplished. That's the first seal. Verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. The word here is the same word that we get our word, uh, pyrotechnic, the pyro part. It, it's the word for fire. So I want you to picture fire red, okay? Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So another reason I think the first one isn't so bad because it's almost like he establishes a peace that then the second rider rips away. But keep reading. So that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So notice what happens here. The second rider comes out. When the second seal is broken, a second rider appears on a second horse. And it's a bright red, fire red horse. You might almost see flames coming off of this horse. That kind of red. And the rider is given authority to cause war. To take peace from the earth. This isn't just someone who's going out slaying. This is one who turns the hearts of men against one another. This is one inciting violence within the hearts of men. This isn't just one taking a sword and killing people. This is much more insidious in a way because it's happening in men's hearts. He's given a great sword. The sword would have been the dagger. It would have been the short sword that those in high positions in the Roman government or in the Roman military would have would have borne on them. in fact, very few very few Romans would have had one of these. This would have been generals and Caesar and a couple of other folks like that. This is one who has authority given from the one with all authority and he goes turning the hearts of men against each other so that they Would kill one another. This is more of what we expect when we think of the apocalypse. But this is also from God. How do we rectify that? How do we rectify that God would allow men to be so evil? If God is such a good God, how could he let men be so evil? In fact, he seems to be causing it here, doesn't he? What's going on? I heard someone put it this way. Sometimes... God allows you to do things or doesn't allow you to do things exactly how you want them. Sometimes he limits you. You ever um. You ever thought, I wish I could do that, but I just can't bring myself to? Sometimes that's God stopping you. God help us when he removes that from us. When he takes away those boundaries and causes us to be complete savages. That's what's happening here. God is taking away the boundaries, letting you do what your heart desires. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's so ugly. This is the unbridled passions of men running rampant. And God, through his divine will, is letting this happen, not because he wants people to kill themselves and each other, but because the time has come in which God's plan must be fully revealed. It's a serious matter when God says enough is enough. And that's exactly what's happening. When he opened the third seal, verse 5. So we have two seals. One is conquest. One is war. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, have you noticed this? Each one has a different living creature calling and I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What? What is he saying? Okay, so um, if you look back in the days of Cicero, you look at Cicero's writings, you find out that a denarius ought to have been able to buy you about a week, week and a half worth of wheat for one person. Okay. That would have been about 10 times or possibly maybe even a little bit more of what it's buying here. About 10 quarts of wheat should have cost you a day's wage. The barley, you should have been able to get 30, 35 quarts of barley. But here it's just one wheat, one quart of wheat, three quarts of barley. It would be like you um anybody look at gas price today? Gas prices. Unleaded by the interstate is just under two twenty a gallon. It'd be like you going home and it's now twenty two dollars a gallon. That's the difference that we're talking about here. Even on the low end estimate would be like this is eight times more expensive than it should be. Possibly even sixteen times more expensive than it should be it's price gouging no it's famine you see the bread is so limited and people are so desperate for it they're willing to pay much higher prices to get it if they have the money for it it's it, we we've seen this happen in fact it's happening right now in venezuela it's happening right now in other parts of the world where food is scarce because of all sorts of different problems that have come to play and now Grocery stores can't keep food on the shelves, and when they do have it, it's at exorbitant prices because people are in such demand of it. People are saying, "I'll give you fifty dollars for that loaf of bread. I'll give you seventy for that loaf of bread." Now you think, "Well, it'd be great to be a business owner," but then you can't buy bread. You see, this is what happens when war takes place. When war takes place, there's a shortage of food. I mean, after all, who's going to farm? When an enemy army is coming right up the road, burning everything that they leave behind. There's nothing to farm. Who's going to be able to get food into the city when an army is surrounding the city and cutting off anything from getting in or going out? How are you going to get water? How are you going to get the basics of life if you can't get people coming in and out with those basics from the fields around? How are you going to get milk? from the cows down the road in that dairy if that road is blocked off and the milk truck can't get through you can't everything becomes so scarce that it's so pricey oh they've got oil and wine the the things that rich people should have the things that i mean those things are fine nothing's wrong with any of them but the basic necessities to live are scarce see this is what happens when when people live by God's means, they have plenty. A fool's belly is never satisfied. When people are living against God's will, their, their stomachs are never satisfied. They never have enough to eat. They're starving because they're against God. But when people honor God, they have enough. You might think, well, we don't have much more than that. Maybe not. It's okay. You don't need more than that. God gives you what you need. Think about the sparrows. Are you not more valuable than a sparrow? God feeds them. Why wouldn't he feed you? Think about the lilies of the field. They don't spin or toil, and yet they have beautiful arrangement, more beautiful than Solomon himself in all his splendor. Won't God take care of you? Are you not more valuable than a lily? You see, God takes care of us. But when God moves his hand and says, have it your way, his care is no longer there, and there's famine. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. You see, the natural progression in all this is War devastates the land, leads to famine, and now people are dying by the droves. I think the Black Plague killed about a quarter of Europe, if I'm not mistaken. So imagine a worldwide Black Plague where we have 7 billion people on Earth. Maybe around 8 billion. Not quite 8 billion, I don't think, but, or something like that. 2 billion gone. There would be six United States worth of people dead. See, this is the natural progression, isn't it? When we get away from God, we turn on each other. We don't have enough. We die without hope. Not everyone dies at this point. Just a fourth of the earth. But, oh my, how devastating. If you've ever seen pictures from World War II of mass graves or from war-torn countries, or even countries in which there are great, um, terrible things that happen. And suddenly, because of some act of nature or something, there's just tons of dead bodies. And people are struggling to try to get them buried. You can imagine the horrible scene that this fourth seal brings. And this is just... We haven't even opened the scroll yet. We haven't even gotten to the main part of God's punishment yet. There's a change. These first four are all horsemen. They're all called out by the angels that are closest to God, the four living creatures that are centered just around the throne. And then in the fifth seal, something happens. Instead of seeing what happens on earth, there's a scene that happens in heaven look in verse 9 when they opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the witness they had borne. and they cried out with a loud voice "O sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. John's eyes get moved from earth up to heaven, and just below the throne of God, it's like there's this altar, and under the altar are these souls of the saints. Now, the prayers of the saints have already been born. In the last chapter, Revelation 5, we see the 24 elders carrying these golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And now we see the souls of those saints, the souls of those who are martyred for their faith, the souls of those who died in Jesus' name, the souls of those who had given every sacrifice that they could in response to the sacrifice that God had given for them. And they're crying out to God, a Sovereign Lord, holy and true, and He is, how long? I think back to Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? How long will you, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O oh Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How long until you make that promise good? How long before you deal bountifully with us? And it's not just that they're saying, God, are you going to keep us in torment forever? God, are you going to make us wait forever? Are you never going to vindicate our names? It's not about the vindication of their names. It's about the vindication of His name. The souls of the departed, the saints who have been martyred, are crying out to God, God, make your name great! Vindicate yourself! God, please hurry! And get the glory you deserve. Yes, there is vindication for them. But that's not what matters. Nearly so much as vindication for him. It is one thing to pray, God, get my enemies. It's another thing to pray, Lord, vindicate your name. I don't care if my enemy has done terrible things to me. If God's name is glorified, I don't care what he chooses to do with my enemy. Because, after all, if he redeems my enemy, he's no longer my enemy, and his name is glorified in the ability to take someone so terrible, so wretched, so horrible, and make him his own son, adopt him just as he adopted me. But if he doesn't do that, if he brings punishment on my enemy, then his name is glorified in that he has done justice. It matters not to me which way. Oh. So, I'd much rather see my enemy redeemed. It's his call. It's his choice. And I think these saints are crying out because they want God's name vindicated. They want his name glorified. And something interesting happens. He gives them clothes, a white robe. It's interesting. Where have I seen that before? One of the churches, it's, it's ah, he's talking to Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garment. Wait a minute. These are the ones that are killed, and yet they've conquered. He gives them white robes. We'll see them. Don't don't worry. It's not the last time we're going to see the white robes. We'll see a whole throng of them praising God in chapter 7. Beautiful chapter to come. But for now, they're given white robes, and they're told, Just rest. The day's coming. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal... So we have these four seals where God is beginning to act out his judgment on earth. We have the fifth seal where God is promising his saints, yes, that my judgment is coming. Be patient. The time has not fully come yet. It's coming. Just rest. And now the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. You see it? The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. You see it? It's like God has cut the sky open. The stars have fallen. The sun has blackened. The moon turns blood red. and just like a scroll that's cut in the middle, it just rolls away to each side. God is ripping open the heavens to do his work. And this isn't even the seventh seal yet. We haven't even looked in the scroll that the lamb is opening. This is just the beginning of the end. This is just the beginning of God's judgment. This is him rolling up his sleeves, doing a couple of warm-ups, before he gets down to business this is him just putting everything in place so that when he acts it will be decisive permanent and what happens on earth (laughs) chaos verse 15 then the kings of the earth doesn't matter that you're king anymore and the great ones doesn't matter that you're great and the generals oh that doesn't matter at all and the rich and the powerful that ain't going to help you now And everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand in the day of God's wrath? I can't stand before God in the day of his favor. Who can stand in the day of his wrath? Father, may we never forget who you are. This chapter isn't a fun chapter. It's not pleasant to see these things happening. It's not pleasant to consider the war and the famine and death. (coughs) It's not pleasant to hear the cries of martyrs begging for your vengeance. It's not easy seeing the heavens being ripped apart and people running for their lives. It's not pleasant. God, remind us of these things. Remind us of the permanence and the terror of your wrath. A, so that we may be ever more devoted to loving you and serving you. B, so that we may be ever more devoted to sharing you and helping others not face this kind of a judgment. Father, through your words, change our lives. Through the study of this book, help us live in light of your character and your works. May we be different as we come to see you for who you are. Help us live the way you want us to live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.